Maybe you're new to our church or you're new to church in general. You were invited by a friend or a coworker, and this is the first time you've ever stepped foot in a Christian worship gathering. Well, this is you. We're glad that you're here with us this morning, and we invite you to continue to attend in the days to come. I'm especially glad that you're here today because you'll get an inside look at what the church is to be all about. Maybe you've wondered, what is the church? What is it supposed to be doing? What's its purpose? Maybe you've been attending Redeemer Church of Dubai services for a while and you're still wondering, why are we here? What are we doing in this place? Every organization has a mission statement, whether they have it on a big banner or on their website or not. Walt Disney Corporation has a mission statement. It's to create happiness by providing the finest in in entertainment for people of all ages everywhere. A lesser known company, Nuts World, also has a mission statement and it caught my eye this past week. It goes like this. Number one, rule the world. Number two, get lots of cookies. Number three, eat the cookies. Number four, get more cookies. And number five, eat those cookies too. Sounds like quite an appetizing mission statement. Disney is all about entertainment. Apparently, Nuts World is all about cookies. What about us? What's the church to be focused on? What's the mission of the church? In some philosophy classes, I've heard of teachers who start with the question, they'll ask this. They'll say, what's the most important part of the ox cart? Maybe you've heard the question posed, what came first, the ox or the cart? What's most important? Well, is it the ox that pulls the cart? Is it the cart? Is it the axle? Is it something else? Well, eventually the philosopher will say, it's neither. The most important thing is the blueprint for the ox cart. If you know what the thing is meant to be in the mind of the creator, it doesn't matter if you run out of the materials. You can have infinite ox carts because you know what it's meant to be. You know how to make it. So what's the most important part of the church? Now, some would say, well, pastor, of course, it's the music. If the music is bad, then the church will die and wilt away. Others will say it's the preacher, or how about the programs? Successful church is one that has a long list of programs that everybody's busy taking part in. Or maybe it's the size of the church. The most important thing about a church is how big it is. The larger the church, the greater the church it is. But friends, all of those would be incorrect. The philosophers have it right. The most important thing is the blueprint. It's the reason why the church is here. It's the mission of the church. Its purpose is the most important thing. If you lose that, you lose the church. I've heard it said that if you lose the mission, you have motion without any meaning. If you lose the mission, you have motion without any meaning. If you lose the mission, you end up succeeding at the wrong things. So we want to be careful as a church... That we stay on the mission that God has given us. We don't want to veer off the side of the road and end up being on a totally different road. So what is our mission? What's our blueprint? Are we going in the right direction here? 
Well, we see the answer in our text today. But let's start first with some context from chapter 28. Let's look first at verses 16 and 17. It's the verses that build up, that lead right up to the commission. Verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. The book of Matthew up to this point traces the theme of a kingdom. And throughout the book, it presents Jesus as the king of that kingdom. However, at the end of the book, this would-be king, this would-be Lord is crucified. And his disciples and his friends, they're crushed, they're confused. But Matthew shows us that that death, that crucifixion is not the end of the story. That on the third day after his death, Christ's tomb was found empty. And hundreds saw the risen Christ. Women saw him. Children saw him. Men saw him. His disciples saw him. Even a tomb guarded by the finest soldiers wasn't enough to keep Christ in that grave. He was the son of God raised from the dead. His resurrection proved that he was indeed the true king. And yet verse 17 says that after the resurrection, Jesus got his disciples together and some doubted. The word for doubt here is not the normal word used for doubt. It's not that they were unsure whether they believed or not, but rather they believed but, but, but hesitated a bit. They had not yet digested all the implications of Christ's death and resurrection. It surprised them. It rocked their world. I mean, one minute, Jesus is their leader. He's the king. He's going he's to rule. They feel like he's going to come in and politically just rule the place. The next minute, he's dead. He shows himself to have no power. He's there on the cross dying. And then the next minute, he's alive. A couple of days later, he's alive and he appears to them. And this just rocks the disciples' world. And you can imagine what kind of roller coaster ride they were on. No, their doubt wasn't final. We know that they believed. It says they worshiped there. And then after Christ's death, the disciples, they went on a mission to spread the gospel. They would even die for their belief in Christ. Many of the disciples were told were crucified. It's likely that Peter was actually crucified upside down because he didn't consider himself worthy enough to die in the same manner that Christ died. These illiterate fishermen, these tax collectors, these revolutionaries were now risking their lives to change the world by spreading the name of Christ. And the early church, it grew. It exploded. We're told in the book of Acts that on some days, thousands were added to their number. If you're new to the church, if this is the first time you stepped into a church gathering like this, please know that the death of Christ and his resurrection from the dead radically changed the lives of those around Jesus 2,000 years ago. And it can radically change your life today. The purpose of his sacrifice was to bring God glory and to save us from our sin. Yet the Bible is clear that apart from new birth in Christ, each one of us is dead in our sin. It actually says those exact words in the first chapter of Ephesians. It says we are, we are all dead in our sins and trespasses. In the original Greek, that word dead, it means dead. It doesn't mean kind of dead. It doesn't mean partially dead. It doesn't mean half dead. It doesn't mean a little sick. It doesn't mean handicapped. It doesn't mean disabled. It doesn't mean dying. It means dead. Without hope, without life. 
But friends, the amazing news of the gospel that we hold out here at Redeemer is that the loving and just God of the universe, the one who created everything, he has looked upon hopelessly dead sinners. He had grace and he had mercy and sent his son Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, came down to this earth. And there on the cross, he paid the penalty for our sin, and he faced the wrath of God. He faced God's full, overflowing cup of wrath so that you and I wouldn't have to. And then on that third day, he rose from the grave, showing that he was indeed God, showing that the sacrifice was complete, and proving to us that if we believe in him, we can be reconciled to God forever. Friends, if you don't yet believe in Christ, I want you to understand, I want you to feel the significance of what I'm telling you this morning. I want you to realize the indescribable gift that God has given you in sustaining your very life and his patient forbearance as he allows the gospel to even go forth now, even today, even so that you could hear it. This is the greatest news in the world. That in Christ we have hope in this life and in the next. Turn to him in faith. Turn to him with a posture of faith in your heart. The Bible says one is not saved when you walk an aisle during an altar call or raise your hand at the end of a service. You're not saved because you've been baptized or your church attendance or because you've done any good work. No, what the Bible says that we are only saved because of what's been done outside of us in Christ. The Bible also says to be saved, one must repent of that sin, to turn from their sin and to believe in Jesus to save you. And friend, you can do that from your seat today. You could respond to him and enjoy friendship with the holy God of the universe now and forever. And fellow Christians, as you sit here today and hear again about the death of Christ and his resurrection for the dead... Have you wondered what difference that death and resurrection has on your daily lives? If the resurrection happened, how are we as Christians to respond? If Jesus is the King of Kings, if he's the Lord of Lords, what does he want us to be about while we remain here? Well, that's what the Great Commission is all about. Jesus gives us our task, and we're called to obediently respond to the task he set before us. So if you're wondering what the mission of our church is, well, our mission statement is basically the mission statement that Jesus gives us in this passage. So I have one main overarching point today, and it's this. That we exist to make disciples of all nations. If you want to know what the overarching idea or mission that we're all about, it's what Jesus tells us here in the Great Commission. It's that we are to make disciples of all nations. That's our mission. Everything we do as a church, we want that to fall under that umbrella. We want to make sure we don't get carried away with other things. We want to be faithful to what Jesus has told us to do. And so what we'll do with the remaining time is we'll look at three things about that mission that we see in our passage today. So that'll serve as our outline for the rest of the sermon. Three things. First, we'll see the power of mission. 
Second, the privilege of mission. And third, the promise of mission. Sorry to disappoint you. There's no fourth point, the poem of mission. We're going to stop there. Power, privilege, and promise. Three points. First, let's start with the power of mission. Look at verse 19. Go, therefore. Now, let's stop there for a minute. Seems like a good place to stop and just take a break. The word, therefore, is one of the most important words in the Bible. You always want to stop your reading when you hit a therefore. You want to underline it. You want to circle it. You always want to go look back to see what it's referring to, to see what it's there for. See, what Jesus is saying in verse 19 is, because of what I've already said, what I'm about to say is made possible. Look back at verse 18. Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. We need to take a deep breath and consider what Jesus is not saying. He's not saying that he's only in charge of his followers and their churches. What Jesus is saying here is that he's been given authority over everything. There isn't a single government or so-called government or organization or movement or individual being who has a past to ignore Jesus and do whatever they think is good. Now Jesus holds all authority His authority reaches the highest levels to the subatomic levels. Electrons, DNA, viruses, cancer cells, heartbeats, brain waves, and back pain. Jesus is saying that he has authority over avalanches in the Himalayan mountains and flakes of volcanic ash that are rising over Iceland and the grains of sand that irritated your eyes during the sandstorm last week. Now, friends, his authority is personal. He's not just been given authority over organizations and laws of nature. He has authority over every single one of us who's sitting in this room today and over every single person on the face of the earth now, past, present, and future. And so because all authority has been given to Christ then, because Christ is in total control then, because Christ has authority over heaven and earth then, Verse 19. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Here is our mission to make disciples of all nations. But before we even get there, Jesus wants to make it abundantly clear that it starts with His power. That it's not in our strength, it's not in our power, it's not in our talents, it's not in our gifting, it's not in anything we can do on our own. But it starts with the power of God. He wants us to know that his authority over every square centimeter in this world allows us to go onto mission knowing that it will succeed in his power. So we start there. The power of mission is the power of God. It all starts there. There's power, but there's also privilege. That's the second point. And we'll spend most of our time here today. The privilege of mission. While there's power provided, we still have to act. God gives his people the honor and privilege of coming with him on mission. 
It's remarkable. We get to act. We're not just to sit back and haphazardly let go and let God. We join in the work. You don't lean on a shovel and just pray for a hole to show up. You don't hug a chicken and pray for a chicken now, chicken strip to just pop out of the chicken. You've got to work. You've got to respond to God's commands and his mission. So what is it? What's his mission? Well, we see several things here. But there's actually just one imperative or command in the commission. And several other things that describe the process. The command is to make disciples of all nations. There's our mission statement again. It's important to note that the Great Commission is not simply to tell people about Jesus. It's not merely to preach the gospel. It's not simply to feed the poor. It's not to grow a big church. The mission statement from Jesus is to see people come to know Christ and to grow spiritually. It's to see new believers become mature believers. That's what it means to make disciples. In that process, God changes hearts. God's the one who changes hearts, but we have to work toward that end. There's several ways we do that. One of the ways we do it is by baptizing. We place a big priority on baptism at Redeemer because it's one of the two ordinances of the church. It's an important part of making disciples because it's the action whereby a believer publicly confesses before the world that it's only by the grace of God that he or she is saved. It's an outward display of an inward reality. It identifies the person with Christ and is a vivid picture of the gospel. The inclusion of baptism in the Great Commission is also interesting for another reason. Now, Jesus could have stopped short of mentioning it and just focused on preaching or on evangelism. But to focus on an ordinance of the local church gives us strong signals that churches are to be the main part of God's mission. It's clear from the rest of Scripture that baptism means becoming part of a community with membership and with boundaries. But Jesus seems to be placing the establishing of local churches at the heart for his plan to take the gospel to the world. It makes sense because this was the strategy that the Apostle Paul did in the book of Acts. He would go into urban areas, he'd preach the gospel, and when he had established a church in that urban center, then he'd go and he'd leave and go to another city and do the same thing. And while that work wasn't finished, he realized that the way to most permanently influence a city was to plant a church in it that would then continue the work long after he was gone. And this is what we've sought to do as a church since we started. To be faithful to plant new churches. And we've prayed for opportunities to do so. And by God's grace, a few of us pastors were able to meet His Highness Sheikh Saud bin Sakr al-Qasimi, the ruler of RAK, a couple of years ago. And His Royal Highness gave us land for a church building in that emirate. And so we got to work and we helped along with UCCD to plant Josh Manley over there over a year ago. And we launched Emmanuel Church of Frugera last October with Pastor Steve Jennings. We trained him for a year in our pastoral internship program and then sent him and a few families to that emirate to plant a church in the center of Fujera. And now our prayer is that those two churches would be movement leaders in their parts of the country. And so we, like Paul, we pull out of active ministry in those places. And we pray that over the years, there up in the northern emirate, that RAK Church would plant new churches. And we pray that on the Indian Ocean coast, that that coast would be littered with churches filled with gospel witnesses that Emmanuel Church of Fujera would then plant. 
We know that there are now permanent outposts of the gospel in those two cities. We know that the gospel is being faithfully preached every Friday morning there right now as we speak. And that it's preached throughout the week by the members of that congregation. This is why we have the pastoral internship program in our church. We want to raise up pastors who will plant churches. So we want to see that happen with Benoy and with Shahab and with Marwan. We want to, Lord willing, send them to pastor churches, be involved in church ministry, plant new works to spread the gospel to the outermost parts of the earth. And we do this because the local church is at the heart of God's plan for spreading the gospel through the world. Well, another thing Jesus mentions is that making disciples of all nations means teaching all that I've commanded you. The word translated everything is actually two phrases. All things and as much as. That wording intensifies the command. We must teach potential disciples to do every last thing Jesus says. That's a big task. The church's teaching function is thus of great importance. That's why we preach through portions of scripture regularly. We teach because Jesus commanded us to teach. But we don't do it for education's sake, for mere intellectual knowledge. He speaks of teaching as observing what Jesus commanded. In other words, Jesus is most concerned with a new way of life. And throughout the book of Matthew, Jesus is urging his followers to live in a manner pleasing to God. He objects to the sterile legalism of many in his day who earn God's favor by observing the law. Jesus urges, urges them to live in purity and humility, with generosity, with concern for the poor and the marginalized, with a care for widows and orphans, and with a zeal to proclaim the coming kingdom. Jesus is making it clear that his followers don't pick and choose parts of his teachings that we feel like following. What he's saying is we don't neglect certain parts of his teaching. No, we are to observe all that Jesus commanded. Now, part of making disciples, then, is to see new believers become mature believers by living lives of honor to God. We want to see Christians grow spiritually and fall more in love with Jesus. The Great Commission doesn't stop at conversion. It continues throughout one's life. This is why discipleship and accountability are so important. Now, preaching is a big part of this, but it's not enough. Each of us must be in community with others. We need people who know our hearts. We need people asking us difficult questions and holding us up to Jesus' standard of living. Now, friend, do you have anyone in your life like this? Are you meeting with anyone regularly to read the Bible and to confess your sin and struggles? If not, all of us need it. I have elders and other church members who ask me regularly difficult questions. They ask me if I'm pursuing Christ and how I'm doing with sin. I have a phone call every Tuesday evening with the man that led me to Christ over 20 years ago. And we ask each other deep questions. We ask each other if we're being faithful to our wife. He asks me if I'm loving Gloria well. He asks me how I'm doing with, with purity, with greed, with lust, with, with pride. He asks me if I'm spiritually leading my children. He asks me if work has been more important than them or ministry is more important than God. And we go back and forth and we talk to one another. We share our heart struggles. We share honestly what's going on and we pray for each other. We want to know if we're being faithful to all that Jesus commanded. If you don't have people in your life doing that, then ask someone in your community group. 
Ask a friend in this church. Ask the person sitting next to you this morning. Talk to one of the elders afterwards. We can help you find someone. It's certainly best to have men with men, women with women. We want everybody sitting with someone and opening up your heart, being honest, dealing with your sin. If there's any sin residing in your heart, let it go. Start working on it. Get it out of the open. Expose it so then you could kill it. Well, a third thing Jesus mentions as part of making disciples is actually the first thing he mentions. It's to go. To make disciples of all nations, we must first go to the people who don't know Christ. Churches all around the world are trying to be faithful to this command by going to what some Christian leaders call the 1040 window. It's the region of the Eastern Hemisphere located between 10 and 40 degrees north of the equator. It's home to 3 billion people where most of the world's unreached people live. 14 million North African Berbers, 40 million West Africans, 800 million Northern Chinese, 60 million on our peninsula, most of whom have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And while those numbers are sobering, here's the exciting part about the 1040 window. You are sitting right in the middle of it. The sidewalks you walk on, the elevator in your building, the metro you ride to work, the grocery store you shop at, these everyday ordinary places make up one of the most incredibly strategic places in the world to reach unreached people. And you just have to put on your sandals and walk down the hallway or turn to the person sitting next to you in the office boardroom. You're here. Whether you meant to or not, you're here. Churches around the world are trying to raise money and convince people to come here. And yet this morning we have hundreds of people sitting in this room right now. We're here. It's a fact that God did not bring you here by accident. It wasn't coincidence. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't a roll of the dice. It wasn't a job that brought you here. It wasn't school that brought you here. It wasn't money that brought you here. Ultimately, it was God who brought you here. Men, women, and children from all the nations are gathered here. In Karama, in Dira, in Burdubai, in Jumeirah, in Barsha, in Garhud, in Sharjah. But we know that there's a second element to going too. It's not just being somewhere. It's actually engaging with the people that are there and sharing the gospel with them. Jesus has called us as Christians radically in so that he can send us radically out. We were saved to be sent. So friends, let's not waste our time here. Let's not waste it. Most of us will leave Dubai at some point in time. So don't see this as a parenthesis in your spiritual life and church involvement. Meaning that your real involvement in ministry and church is back in the church in your home country. If Dubai is your home and you go to this church, then this church is your home church. And if Dubai is your home right now, then this is your most important ministry right now. This is where you spend your time. This is the church where you give financially for the ministry. This is where you volunteer to serve regularly. These are the friends that you're in active community with. Don't see this as a break from your ministry. Don't settle for this lie of Dubai that we often talk about. 
You're not here to make money, I promise. But that's why you came. I hope you realize today that to make money is not the reason God brought you here. God's reason is not for you to get rich, for you to make ends meet, for you to build a house for your family back home, or for you to buy stuff. That's not the primary reason God has brought any of us here. He brought you here because he's a God on mission who brings his followers on mission with him. And he's given you and he's given me a privilege to be on that mission with him. And it's an honor and privilege that we don't deserve. And so we must go. We must go about our days actively looking for ways to spread the good news of Jesus. This last week, I was going to our Bible study seminar called Secrets of the Kingdom. Many of you were there. I looked forward to studying the Bible with you. We had over 100 people show up, and I was so encouraged to just spend those six hours just studying the Bible. It was a wonderful weekend. But the most startling thing happened to me on the way there on Friday afternoon. I went downstairs to my apartment building here in Dira, and I jumped into a taxi. I was really excited about the taxi ride to have a few minutes of quiet to myself so that I could spend time with myself and my good friend, Mr. Smartphone. So I get in there and I start taking out my phone. I just start doing a little reading at a few minutes away from crying kids and before I got to Limeridian. And so just started reading some things. And the taxi driver starts talking to me. I start thinking, oh, I hope he stops. Because he's interfering with the me time I had planned. He asks me if I have kids. I said, yep. He said, how many do you have? I said, four. Mr. Conversationalist I was. And then he asks me, are your kids living here with you? And I said, yep. Then all of a sudden, just like that, starts crying uncontrollably. Just weeping and wailing loudly. Never quite experienced anything like that. I looked down at my phone and I said to myself, self, perhaps you should put your phone away now. So I put that away and I began to talk to Ed. He began to tell me how much he misses his five children and his wife at home. He told me how tired he was, working 365 days a year, 12 hours a day, never a day off. He cried as he told me he doesn't even have enough money to phone his wife and family, so all he can do is send some texts, some SMSs, hasn't talked to them for a while. And then he said words that I'll never forget. He just said, I have no hope. My life is hopeless. I'm stuck here with no hope. Now, I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but if there's ever an open door to the gospel, that's one of them. I'd come into the car with myself in mind, me at the center, no thought for this man. In fact, that had become my normal pattern for the last month or two. My early eagerness of sharing with taxi drivers and sharing the gospel with those in my building and those at the shops had waned. And in that moment, with that man crying, I remembered Chris's sermon from that morning. If you're here with us last Friday, you remember he took us through Colossians chapter 4. And I remember as he taught us, he was encouraging us to pray for evangelism. He had just shared verses where the Apostle Paul had asked for prayers from the churches to pray for him, that he would have open doors for gospel proclamation for him. Now, Paul actually uses that metaphor of open doors on several occasions. And each time it's to describe divine appointments or opportunities for gospel work. Sometimes we use this 
phrasing of open door to discern God's will and decision making, whether we're to date or court this person or get married or whether God's opening an open door for this job or this move or this car. But but in the Bible, Paul is always talking about an open door in reference to the gospel being preached. Here's one of those open doors for me. I told Ed the gospel. I shared with him how he could have hope. How there is hope. I urged him to trust in Christ. I gave him money for a phone card to call his family. And when we arrived at Meridian, I asked him if I could pray for him. And he said yes. And so I laid my hand on his shoulder and I prayed for him. I took his phone number and so I could text him throughout the week, encouraging messages. Now, I don't illustrate this as a pastor's hero story. No, but to illustrate the exact opposite. See, I almost missed it. I wasn't looking for an open door. I wasn't praying for an open door. I wasn't even thinking about an open door. That had begun to mark my life the past month or two. As the pastor of this church, going about my city, thinking about myself. I wasn't thinking about an open door, and yet it was right there before me. And not just then, they're always before me. I was reminded how many opportunities we all have right in front of us. Right there in the places we go every day. If we would just engage with those around us. What if we prayed before our errands and saw them as opportunities for God to open a door for the gospel? What if we prayed before our next class or our next meeting and asked God to perhaps use us in sharing the gospel there? What if we actively looked for opportunities to serve hurting people with their physical needs? What's it going to be for us here in Dubai? We're here in the middle of the 1040 window, all of us. What's it going to be for us as Redeemer Church of Dubai? Are we going to serve God like a battleship? Or or are we going to be more like a cruise ship? See, a cruise ship's number one goal is for the pleasure of its occupants. They have swimming pools, karaoke bars, casinos, food 24 hours a day. And their goal is to keep people well entertained and fed. But a battleship has a greater mission than the individual. Everyone gets dirty. Everyone has a job. Whether it's up in the front or behind the scenes, mopping the deck or working in the cafeteria... All jobs have value and make the greater mission possible. A cruise ship navigates towards safe and wave-free waters as to not ruin one's vacation. But a battleship, it heads straight into danger and cares most about accomplishing the task set before it by a higher authority. See, when choosing a cruise ship, you choose one that's going to meet your needs, that's going to make you happy, that's going to satisfy your wants, needs, and desires. But when choosing a battleship, You choose it based on the flag that flies above the ship. And you ask it if it's worthy of my life. You choose it based on the mission of the ship. Is it noble? Is it right? The church is many things. It's a family, it's a body, it's a bride. But it's also an army. It's a battleship. And battleships operate differently than cruise ships. All of us need to be ready to get dirty and to serve. A redeemer, let's be on mission together. Even if it's exhausting, even if it's uncomfortable, even if it's risky. We're not going to sit back as a church. We're not going to be comfortable. 
So in the coming days, we're praying for God to do big things in our midst. We're praying that we would be able to plant more churches in a variety of different languages in this land. And so we're working hard to start a pastoral training center here where we can offer theology classes, where we can train pastors, where we can send out church planters. We want all of our church here to be effective at teaching the gospel to others. And so we do training seminars from time to time. We do conferences. We do classes at 9 a.m. on Friday mornings to teach, to train, to equip. And so we have three new classes, one of which is called What is the Gospel? So we want everybody in this church to be able to effectively and clearly share the good news of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. We want us to be able to share that with everyone at any time. We want the members of this church to be looking for active ways to share the gospel in their spheres of influence. We want those in our church to look for ways to care for the widows and to care for orphans and to care for the poor around them. We want our gospel message to be consistently adorned by our loving actions. Now, we don't have to choose between proclaiming the gospel and helping with physical needs. Now, while the central goal of the Great Commission is to make disciples, and at that center must be the proclamation of the gospel. It's to be saved, people must hear the good news of Jesus Christ. But as we go out throughout the world doing that, we will inevitably come across people who don't have clean water. We're going to come across a taxi driver who can't call his family. We're going to find maids and nannies who are abused. Laborers lacking basic necessities. Men and women in our neighborhoods who are trafficked as slaves. And as Christians, we should help these people. Oh, friends, may we be as a church that backs up our gospel-preaching lips with lives that resemble Christ. We want to see the spread of the gospel beyond our country. We're praying that... God would allow us in some way to impact countries around us. And so we look for ways to plant churches there. We look for ways to send short-term teams there. Like we're sending Glenn and Richard and Alvin to the Philippines. See, friends, at Redeemer, we're never going to have a list of 50 or so ministries that have multiple events every week. We're not going to spend all our time together gathered together as Christians. We're not going to spend... All of our time just being with one another. Now we gather on Fridays. We encourage you to join one of our community groups throughout the week. We have Bible studies and trainings periodically, but our mission is to be sent out. So friends, I say again, it's not an accident that God brought you here. Well, make it your aim to make disciples of all nations. Here now and wherever you end up in the future. There are remain hundreds of people groups who've never heard the good news of Jesus. The Iran people of Pakistan, 10.264 million people, zero known believers. The Mahratta Kumbi of India, 6.93 million people, zero known believers. The Syed people of Bangladesh, 1.076 million people. Zero known believers. The Liabuku people of Indonesia, 80 people. Zero known believers. Only 80 people. But how will any of them know Jesus if no one goes to them? One particular people group in our country, you see them every day, 
Over 900,000 people, zero known believers. There will be a day when the Great Commission will be complete. And until that time, we as Christians have a privilege of being a part of it. Are you praying and looking for open doors? Are your eyes open for opportunities to testify to the hope that you have? For some of you, you might be thinking, well, isn't it risky to share the gospel? What if I get turned down? What if I get mocked or made fun of when I invite someone to come with me here on Friday mornings? What if I'm persecuted for my faith? Maybe your family members aren't yet believers and there are threats coming from them. Maybe you get passed up for better jobs when you start speaking of Jesus. Well, I want to close with the most encouraging words from this text. That's the third point this morning. The promise of mission. And we'll look at this only for a moment. But we must close by looking at this promise. It's why that we can have confidence in persevering in the persecution, which will assuredly come when we are announcing God's good news to a lost world. Look at what Jesus says in the last part of verse 20. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. See, this gospel of Matthew, the 28 chapters of material all ends with this verse, with this phrase, with Christ's breathtaking promise that he is with his followers all of the days to the end of the age. He doesn't say, I will be with you. He says, I am with you. And his eye is emphatic, no less than I will be with you. There's no break in his presence. As long as the world lasts, Jesus will be with us in this world. We're not alone in this commission. The one who has removed every barrier between us has provided eternal joy for us together with him. This one died for us. He was raised for us. He triumphed over sin and guilt and condemnation and suffering and death and Satan. And he is the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. This one, this Christ, this Christ, he comforts us by saying, Christian, I am with you. And I will be with you all the way to the end. The one who has all authority will comfort you. He's with you. That's a meditation too long for even our lifetime to comprehend. Friends, as we go about this mission, we are confident that God is with us. We can boldly spread the name of Christ and even risk losing everything for his sake. Let's be on mission together to make disciples of all nations to the glory of our great God. Let us pray together to that end. Father, we humbly recognize that we are not here in the UAE by accident. And we repent of all the times we wonder if 
you have made a mistake in placing us where you've sovereignly placed us. Forgive us for holding fast to the idea that we exist to serve ourselves, our comfort, our careers, and our security. Please use this church, these individual members who make up this body, use us to spread the gospel among the nations. Father, use us to spread the good news of Jesus Christ here in this city, in this region, and in the world. And would we as a church not veer away from this mission this year and forever, but would we remain focused on serving you in this place? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.